This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. A few weeks ago when uh, Tony and Amanda asked me if I would talk about theosis, I immediately said, sure, what is that? And <laughs> actually, it's a topic that has uh, interested me for quite a while. Um, the reason my voice is going out, actually, is earlier today I met with about eight or nine students, honor students, and we thought we were going to talk for maybe 20 or 30 minutes. We talked for almost two hours about a lot of different things, um, including some guy they brought up named Pope Francis. I, he sounded vaguely familiar to me, working in Catholic journalism. And um, I thought, actually, I would start by mentioning something about, about Pope Francis that is not well known. People who are, especially those who might not be Catholic, We'll certainly know Pope Francis from newscasts which talk about his remarks made about things like global warming and the economy and, and a number of things. And obviously he has kind of captured the imagination of many people, both Catholic and otherwise. And it's a very fascinating phenomenon. We hear phrases like the Francis effect, uh, the Francis phenomenon, uh, Francis fatigue. Um, maybe that's just in some of the circles I, I run in. But, uh, one thing that's not known, I think, as much or as understood or appreciated as much about Pope Francis uh, as it should be is the fact that he is uh, a real um, spiritual death that has come out, I think, in him, especially regarding this topic of theosis, which I'm going to define in the, in the second hour of my talk. And he actually, uh, early on in his pontificate, just a few months in, he made a, gave a number of audiences in a row in which he made direct or, or indirect reference to a passage from Romans 8. And I uh, ended up writing a, a little piece about this. And it's interesting because he made it clear in one of these audiences that this passage from Romans 8 is actually one of his favorite passages of Scripture. And it actually has to do with the topic of theosis. And um, in fact, the Holy Father said, this is part of what he said in, this, in one of his comments. He said, the living water, the Holy Spirit, the gift of the risen one who comes to dwell in us, cleanses us, enlightens us, renews us, transforms us, because rendering us partakers of the very life uh, of, of God who is love. This is why the Apostle Paul says that the Christian life is animated by the Holy Spirit and by its fruits, which are love, joy, peace, generosity, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's from Galatians 5. The Holy Spirit leads us to divine life as children of the only Son. In another passage from the letter to the Romans, which I have mentioned several times, says Francis, St. Paul sums it up in these words, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And you have received the Spirit who renders us adoptive children, and thanks to whom we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit itself, together with our own spirit, attests that we are children of God. And if we are his children, we are also his heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we take part in his suffering so we can participate in his glory. And of course, it's from Romans 8, 14 to 17. And he goes on to say, this is the precious gift the Holy Spirit brings into our hearts, the very life of God the life of true children, a relationship of familiarity, freedom and trust in the love and mercy of God, who as an effect has also a new vision of others near and far, 
seen always as brothers and sisters in Jesus to be respected and loved. And although the term theosis is not one that many, uh, I think many Christians, even many Catholics are, are well familiar with, when you start looking at some of the other terms that are used, it starts to ring more of a bell. Um, terms like participation, uh, partaking, uh, communion, uh, and so forth. And so we're going to, I want to go into those uh, in, in a little bit. Uh, I was going to spend 30 or 40 minutes on my own ba background, but I think Tony covered that, that pretty well. Uh, but I was actually raised in a very anti-Catholic fundamentalist home. And what I mean by that is um, we actually had many good friends who were Catholic. It's just that we knew that they were going to hell once they died. Um, it, it was, a, you know, it's just the way it was, and I'm only being mildly flippant. Actually, we did have kind of that perspective of Catholics. And so I was raised with many of the stereotypical understandings of Catholics, that they believe that they're saved by their works alone, that they worship Mary, they worship the Pope, uh, they worship a, you know, a piece of bread, et cetera, et cetera. And to make a long story short, uh, I eventually apostatized and became Catholic myself. And really key to that, that process, which actually took several years, was recognizing and, and seeing the actual Catholic understanding of salvation, of soteriology, uh, a view of salvation that is uh, also adhered to very, very closely by you know, the Eastern Orthodox. Um, and there certainly there's aspects of this too that many non-Catholic Christians, many Protestant Christians understand as well. In fact, my, I once had a Catholic priest say to me something that I thought was very, at the time it kind of surprised me, but over the years I realized how true it, it is that in the long run we're going to be surprised how many Protestants are actually Catholic and how many Catholics are actually Protestant. And I'll just, I'll just leave it at that, but there's, there's something, something to that. And obviously there's... Uh, a lot of history and theology there. But in this book that I spent about five years working on with Father David McConey, we have about 15 authors who trace the history of this understanding of sharing in the very triune life of God, actually being partakers of the divine nature, as 2 Peter 1.4 states. And I had the privilege of writing the section on the New Testament, which I'm going to talk about tonight. I want to focus on what the New Testament uh, says about some of this. And I also wrote a a chapter later in the book on what the Catechism of the Catholic Church says about the same theme. And the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which came out in 1994, actually this theme is shot throughout that, that text and in a really beautiful and, and rich way. And so what I want to do tonight actually is begin with three quotes from the Catechism, uh, which is probably three or four more quotes than many Catholics have read from the Catechism. Uh, and then I want to kind of back up and look at several passages uh, of Scripture. So very, very simple approach here. And the three quotes from the Catechism are going to follow the, the uh, outline there in the title of the talk, God, Grace, and Partaking in Divine Nature. So the very first quote, fittingly enough, is the opening quote, quote number, paragraph number one, from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And by the way, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, for those who, who aren't versed in it, um, is the first universal catechism since the Council of Trent. And it came is really kind of the fruit of the Second Vatican Council. It was something that uh, Pope John Paul II really wanted to see come out of the council, which he played a major part. And it really is a beautiful synthesis. I mean, it's, it's a quite large work, but it's a beautiful synthesis 
of some 2,000 years of the tradition, scripture and church fathers and church doctors and conciliar documents and so forth. And when I've given talks on the catechism, I almost always bring up these three particular paragraphs. The very first, then, is paragraph number one about God and his plan of salvation. God, infinitely perfect and blessed in himself, in a plan of sheer goodness, freely created man to make him share in his own blessed life. For this reason, at every time and in every place, God draws close to man. He calls man to seek him, to know him, to love him with all his strength. He calls together all men, scattered and divided by sin, into the unity of his family, the church. To accomplish this, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son as Redeemer and Savior. In his Son and through him, he invites men to become, in the Holy Spirit, his adopted children and thus heirs of his blessed life. And there in that last sentence, in his Son and through him, he invites men to become in the Holy Spirit. We see the Trinitarian reality of God kind of amplified. And there's a lot we could say here about the Trinity, and it'll come up a little bit later. But it's essential. I think one of the one of the things that struck me over the years in working on this and other projects is how how many Christians in the United States have really lost sight of who who God is at His very nature, Triune Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we've ended up in many cases with kind of a form of what uh, some authors have famously described as a, as a moral therapeutic deism. God kind of has created things, he's let it go, and every once in a while when we have problems or we need his help, we might ask him to step in. I think somebody has once called this the, the actions of the divine butler who comes at our beck and call, and we've, we've lost sight of the fact that God at his very, the very essence of God is communion, life-giving love, the perfect exchange of love between the three divine persons, and that's essential to understanding this understanding of, the, of theosis, which flows from that very uh, essence of God as Trinity, from the imminent Trinity, to use kind of the theological language. The second quote about grace is from paragraph 1997, which I usually can remember because that's the year into the Catholic Church, actually. It says, a grace is a participation in the life of God Grace introduces us into the intimacy of Trinitarian life. By baptism, the Christian participates in the grace of Christ, the head of his body. As an adopted son, he can henceforth call God Father in union with the only Son. He receives the life of the Spirit who breathes charity into him and who forms the church. There's a whole section, of course, a much larger section of the Catechism about grace, and there are you know, within Catholic teaching and, and theology, there are various understandings of the various forms of grace, which we, we can't really get into here. But at the heart of it, grace is the actual Trinitarian life in Catholic belief. And then the third paragraph from the Catechism, and I, I love using, actually, when I give uh, this a version of this talk at Catholic parishes, I love beginning with this particular paragraph, paragraph 460. And I tell them, this is the most shocking paragraph in the catechism. And I sometimes, and I, I don't mean this to sound, I hope it doesn't come off in the wrong way, I sometimes say it, it's what I call flippantly the Mormon paragraph. Well, why do I say that? And that's, by the way, it's not a, a diss on Mormonism, although I disagree with Mormonism. 
you understand when I, I read it here to you. Paragraph 460, the word became flesh to make us partakers of the divine nature. For this is why the word became man and the son of God became the son of man so that man, by entering into communion with the word and thus receiving divine sonship, might become a son of God. For the Son of God became man so that we might become God. Uh-oh, getting weird. Joseph Smith, where are you? The only begotten Son of God, wanting to make us shares in his divinity, assumed our nature so that he made man might make men gods. Of course, within Mormon theology, as I understand it, uh, those who have been saved, men, um, do become gods. That's why I kind of have that, you know, that little joke there. The interesting thing, the fascinating thing about this paragraph, which I, th I think it is a little shocking. Even, I mean, when I give this, in, even in Catholic parishes, I people look at me like, that's not the catechism. No, that, no way. Well, these are four quotes. The first quote is from first, Second Peter 1. The second quote is from St. Irenaeus. The third from St. Athanasius. And the fourth from a little-known thinker called St. Thomas Aquinas, who says flatly, so that he made man might make men gods. This paragraph really sums up very well the church's teaching in a very you know, con, uh, you know, succinct form about theosis, which is the Greek word for deification or divinization, sometimes divine adoption. I've already mentioned participation or union, uh, divine sonship. Uh, those who might be familiar with the work of uh, the Catholic uh, theologian Scott Hahn, who's written a lot of popular level work, will know that he uses, he talks a lot about divine sonship. And it's something, a, a phrase that appears throughout the catechism too, a lot of these different forms. Um, the key, one of the key things to understand here is that this understanding of deification is one of participation, of being a partaker, as Peter says. It's never one of possessing, of having for oneself, as though we somehow are able to make ourselves God. We obviously cannot. You know, so deification or theosis does not come through autonomous sovereignty, but through faith and humble reliance in God's power and grace to heal, to transform, to make us children of God. And 1 John 3 is another great passage on this where John says, See what, father, see what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this. When he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And you notice in that quote from 1 John 3, there's a sense of, of movement. This is not a one-time thing that happens and then we're set, we're good. There is a movement towards the eschaton. And, and one thing about um, an authentic soteriology or understanding of salvation is that it has to have that end in mind, the end, the eschaton, where all will be revealed for what it is. And we have a couple more quotes about that in hour number three for those who are willing to endure to the end. I like there's a clock right there. That's great. In the tradition, um, and by tradition, I you know the, just the vast Christian tradition. One of the key 
ways of thinking about or articulating this or teaching is, uh, it's referred to as the formula of exchange. And a, and a summation of that would be this, and this is kind of a, taken from a lot of different sources and synthesized. The Son of God by nature became man so that men might become sons of God by grace. The Son of God by nature became man so that men might become sons of God by grace. And there's a lot of, the, the early church fathers brought this up again and again, and we'll see in a moment they based this on a number of passages of Scripture. So, for example, St. Irenaeus, writing in the second century in his famous work against heresies, he said, For it was this end that the word of God was made man, and he who was the Son of God became the Son of Man, that man, having been taken into the word, and receiving the adoption might become the Son of God. St. Augustine, writing a couple centuries later, God wanted to be the Son of Man, and he wanted men to be the sons of God. And in another place, the Son of God became the Son of Man, so that he might make the sons of men the sons of God. And this is repeated again and again in slightly different forms uh, by the church fathers, not just by the Greek fathers, but also by the Latin fathers as well. Like one thing we try to we try to show in our this book is you know there's a there's a real quick segue that um, in some some Eastern Orthodox circles the idea is given that in the West this teaching about theosis was kind of abandoned around the time of Augustine that maybe even Augustine was part of the problem. And certainly by the time of Aquinas, it's totally gone. And what we try to show is actually that's not the case at all, that actually this is very much part of the Western tradition as much as of the East. It's just that the language oftentimes changes. So, for example, in the Carmelite tradition, and we have a chapter on the Carmelite spirituality, the language is very much one of nuptial union. There's a very marital element that is introduced by the great mystics, you know, uh, St. Teresa of Avila and so forth where it's very much a, and it, at times the language, frankly, is almost shocking. It's surprising. It's kind of explicit. It's, it's very, uh, at times, even erotic. And uh, there's a lot more that can be said, you know, about, about that. Um, but, <clears throat> and here's St. Thomas Aquinas in a little bit longer quote uh, that sums this up um, very well. The only begotten Son of God, wishing to make us shares in his divine nature, assumed our nature so that so that made man, he might make men gods. For the human mind and will could never imagine, understand, or ask that God become man, and that man become God, and a share in the divine nature. But he has done this in us by his power. And it was accomplished in the incarnation of his son, that you might become partakers of the divine nature. And there, of course, he quotes from Second Peter 1.4. So, my, my question and it is, of course, somewhat rhetorical, is this teaching biblical? And it's not only biblical, I would argue and state, but it's a central and unifying theme of Scripture. And it's rooted first in the belief of God as Trinity, and then in the reality of the incarnation, that God became man and dwelt among us, and then, of course, in the saving life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that being the central event in history. Tony mentioned the uh, Left Behind books in my first book. 
one of the craziest quotes in that book, and there's a lot of them, not from me, of course. Mine are all sane and wonderful. But the, the craziest quote, Tim LaHaye, the co-author and creator of the Left Behind series, he said, you want to know what the most central event in, the, in human history is? The rapture. The rapture, he says. And I thought, wow, not God becoming man, really? <laughs> uh, there's more I could say about that, but um, Tim LaHaye doesn't like me. I know because he's, he told me that I, I need to repent and return to the true faith in an email. Um, I'll try to be charitable since that is part of the whole idea of theosis is participating in charity as well. So I want to look for just a few minutes uh, at some of the New Testament underpinnings, the foundations. And, and this is very cursory in many ways, but I want to hit on four or five of the main passages just to give you a sense of it. Um, a real quick note first about a, a passage that many of the church fathers actually used early on and refer to many times, and that is Psalm 82 where it talks about, where there's a quote, it says, I say, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. And this is a, kind of the earliest prompt that we see for the language of deification. Uh, interestingly enough, Justin Martyr, for example, who died around 165, uses this uh, in his writings. He says, it is proved that all human beings are deemed worthy of becoming gods and having the power to become sons of Most High, quoting Psalm 82, uh, verse 6. And we see this as well in Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, and, and a few others. I'll just note that really quickly. In the New Testament, I want to look at four. I've broken it down into four kind of basic categories. And the first are those passages from the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And there's three key themes. These aren't the only, but there's three, I think, that stand out relating to theosis in the Synoptic Gospels. First, the fatherhood of God, believers described as sons of God, and then mankind's participation in the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. It's expressed in differently in the synoptics. And interestingly enough, all three of these, of course, are found in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Matthew 5 through 7, where Jesus is revealed as the new Moses who ascends a mountain in order to deliver the new law and so broaden the covenant to all nations, pointing to the founding formation of a new Israel, the church. So, for instance, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Jesus, the Son, the Prince of Peace, restores peace between the Father and mankind by becoming man. He bridges that gap. So this peace refers to the life-giving relationship between the creator and those he has created, a relationship now expressed in the intimate language of filial love. In the words of the Eastern Catholic theologian Matthew Villanickel, the law in the new kingdom is the law of love, the law of charity. This is, by the way, something that the previous pope, Pope Benedict XVI, really one of the greatest Catholic theologians of, of the past uh, a century or so, emphasized throughout his pontificate, especially in his first encyclical on charity. Jesus then a little later in Matthew 5.44 
says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So this love is exemplified not by mere absence of discord or hatred, but by authentic communion, by real acts of goodness, and by prayer. And the goal of this agape love is perfection. And we get to one of those difficult, challenging verses, Matthew 5.48, where Jesus says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I've tried this out on my kids. It doesn't work. I once heard a homily years ago, a really horrible homily, where the priest said, what this means is that if you're a fireman or a police chief or a, or a police, you know, police officer or an Indian chief, and he said this, this means he, God wants you to be the best fireman, police officer, or Indian chief you can be. And I thought, that's interesting. I looked around. I didn't see any Indian chiefs at all, or firemen, actually, I think. Maybe there was something to that, but I think he missed kind of the heart of this, which is the perfection that comes through being filled with the divine life of God and then is lived out through radical agape love. And this is also exemplified in the great prayer given by Christ to his disciples, the Our Father. The relationship that we have with God the Father is not merely poetic or metaphorical. And for me personally, Growing up, I, I struggled with this, and it's something that um, I, I struggled with for a long time. But referring to God the Father, Abba, really speaks to the astonishing depths and riches of God's love, which has made it possible for us to truly be called sons of God. Now, in the Gospel of John, the second, the second um, area, and I would include in here the first John, which I've already mentioned, I think the prologue to John's gospel is really a key passage. Um, It's one of my favorite passages of of all of Scripture. And, of course, it is about the incarnation, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it asserts in this overture-like fashion, it's really a beautiful, beautiful passage, the divinity of the Logos, who has always existed, who is God, and whose power and person were integral to the act of creation, and the sustaining of all that has been created, John 1, 1 through 3. And the first verse of that gospel, of John's gospel, presents a new creation. And this is a purposeful representation of Genesis 1, 1, as we know, right? In the beginning. And in the light of the incarnate word and this new new creation is a communion in the Trinity's superabundant life of wisdom and love. And then a little bit later in that same passage, a key descriptive used by St. John is children of God, something that we see um, first in John 1:12. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. It's interesting that John, in his gospel, really clearly distinguishes between the only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, who, of course, is God by nature, ontologically, and those who have become children through baptism and grace. We always remain creatures. We never become creator. So, you know, sometimes there's a concern here, but there's some kind of pantheistic motif going on. And and it's interesting because in the Eastern churches, um, which is the, the liturgy and the theology of the East is rich with this understanding, you never 
in those churches, you never have people being confused about this. You don't have people kind of embracing kind of a pantheistic understanding, at least not in my experience. They're because especially in the divine liturgy, there is such an overwhelming sense of God as other that we worship God and then the gift that he grants us is his divine life through his love. It's God who always initiates that. We can't earn that on our own. We can't take that somehow or make that uh, on our own. And so, you know, a lot of my misunderstandings growing up about Catholics um, earning their way to heaven, you know, it goes away when I began to understand exactly how this is presented in uh, Catholic, authentic Catholic theology as opposed in Jack Chick comic books, which turns out are not a good source of information for these things, surprisingly. So John, in short, emphasizes the reality of the children of God while distinguishing uh, between the unique sonship of the incarnate word and the filial adoption that we are given by grace. And of course, he tightly connects this theosis with faith and belief in Jesus Christ. This sonship or divinization involves the reception of grace from the one who is full of grace, quote, and from his fullness we have received grace upon grace, John 1.16. And this fullness is Christ's sonship. We share fully in that, again, by the gift of grace. And I have a section here on, on John 3, 6, uh, 3, of course, the famous verse 3.16, but, but Christ's conversation with Nicodemus, and um, I'm actually going to pass over that real quickly, but because there's a lot involved there. But the key here is understanding that water, just as water or one of the keys, is that just as water in the first creation uh, is shown to have been hovered over by the, by the Holy Spirit, in the new creation in Christ, the Holy Spirit and water bring about a new creation through baptism. And there's a lot more that could be said about that. Obviously, there's been a lot of ink spilled on that, but that's one of the, the key things that stands out. And I mentioned John, 1 John uh, 1 already, John, 1 John 1, 3. And there's other passages as well in 1 John that talks about being children of God. But I want to look at, at Paul and 2 Peter because they're really important here. The Apostle Paul uh, brings up three closely related concepts when we look at theosis. The first is the formula of exchange, which I've touched on already. The second is the adoption as sons, which we've heard in some of the quotes. And the third is bearing the image of Christ, bearing the image of Christ. So, for example, in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. This is kind of one of the succinct Pauline expressions of the formula of exchange. Well, what is, what is this poverty? Obviously, this poverty is fully becoming human, right? Well, what is the richness? It's the richness of divinity. In uh, Philippians 2, we have the famous Christological hymn. It talks about uh, having the same mind as that of Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, that is, became poor, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name of 
which is above every name, etc. The emphasis in Philippians 2 is on the exaltation of Christ because of humility. And in 2 Corinthians, the emphasis is on how we are exalted and made rich because of Christ's humility, his death, his resurrection. Adoption as sons, of probably the key passage here is Galatians 4, 4 through 6, where Paul writes, When the time had finally come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And here we see the close connection between the formula of exchange and adoption. The Son is sent that we might receive adoption as sons. The Son of God by nature becomes man, so that men might become sons of God by grace through the Holy Spirit. I already mentioned Romans 8, which Pope Francis has talked about several times. So look at one of the passages having to do with being conformed to the image of Christ, which is uh, something that Paul talks about in several places. 1 Corinthians 15, 49, Paul teaches that those who share in the divine life are conformed to the image of the Son, the firstborn among many brethren, and so bear the image of the man of heaven. So Christ, as the new, the last and new Adam, restores the communion that had been lost, of course, by the sin of the first Adam. The beloved Son, Paul tells the Colossians, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And it is in and through him that our true image, which was there at the beginning before the fall, can be restored and even not just restored but elevated, something that St. Augustine talks about quite a bit in his various writings. To kind of sum up in, in very um, abbreviated form what Paul teaches uh, those united to Christ in death, that is through baptism, will be united with Christ in his resurrection. Through his death, we are given life. The old man, which is sinful and doomed, has died and a new creation is born, raised up to be in Christ in the heavenly places. And that's from Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. I want to look here then for a moment at 2 Peter 1, which is it's interesting because it has become... Um, over the centuries, it's become kind of the central verse, the gateway, if you will, to understanding theosis, but it actually took quite a few centuries for many of the church fathers to kind of embrace it um, fully in that way. Um, and that passage, Second Peter 1, 2 through 4 says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and goodness or godliness, sorry, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, that through these you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of passion and become partakers of the divine nature. And this phrase, partakers of the divine nature, um, appears, for example, many times in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. For example, in 1996, the Catechism says, talking more about grace, that grace is favor. It is free and undeserved help that God gives to us to respond to his call to become children of God. 
adoptive sons, partakers of the divine nature and of eternal life. One thing that's interesting to me is that although this phrase, partakers of the divine nature, nowhere appears nowhere else in the, uh, the Bible, uh, there are numerous references in the rest of Peter's writing to glory. And I think this has kind of been overlooked by um, even many of the authors that I, I read in, in preparing my chapter in this book. And so I think one of those really overlooked books or verses that really fits well and makes, helps make more sense of 2 Peter 2 is 1 Peter 5.1 where he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. And this is the kind of language that Peter often uses, that we are called to be in that glory. Of course, we know that Peter was one of the three who stood there and saw the transfiguration, right? As we see here. And it clearly had an impression on him, left an impression on him as we would be very, very suitable, of course. And so it comes up uh, many times uh, in his writings. Not to, be, not to give an infomercial, because the book isn't even out yet, but since I've just touched on Scripture and a little bit of the Catechism, I want to point out that some of the other chapters in this book, you know, for those who down the road might want to, to study this further, um, have to do with, the, of course, the Greek fathers, the Latin fathers, St. Augustine, who I've mentioned, the Dominican tradition, where you have uh, Albert, Thomas, Saint Thomas Aquinas, and Catherine. Uh, there's a chapter on the Franciscan theology of deification, then a whole chapter on Trent and the Counter-Reformation, the response of the Catholic Church to the teachings of Luther and Calvin. Um, there's a chapter on the French school of spirituality, which is something, frankly, before this chapter came in, I knew nothing about it at all. Um, very interesting. Uh, a chapter on Neo-Thomism, so the development of the teachings of Thomas Aquinas as it goes down through the centuries. Of course, there's a lot of teaching there. Um, a chapter on John Henry Newman, and the author of that chapter argues very persuasively, I think, that the key to understanding the writings and thought of Newman is theosis, deification, and that Newman actually had a really... Uh, had a lot to say, a lot of interaction with Eastern Orthodox uh, thinking and theology. Sometimes, uh, you know, it doesn't come out. Um, chapters on, a chapter on Matthias Schaben, who is a remarkable uh, 19th century German theologian who wrote a huge book called The Mysteries of Christianity that is remarkable for a synthesis of patristic theology and Thomistic theology which is not an easy thing to pull off, and it's a pretty remarkable book. Uh, we have a chapter that follows the, the teaching of theosis from the first Vatican Council to the second Vatican Council, so from the late 1800s to the 1960s, where you have this birth of what's called the Resourcement Theology in the Catholic Church. And then a chapter on, since Vatican II, the last 50 years, I have a chapter on the Catechism, and then the final chapter, we thought fittingly, would, would not be chronological, but actually is a chapter on theosis and the liturgy, the divine liturgy, uh, the mass. Because really, you know, for, uh, for us, that is where we are closest to the reality of being 
full partakers of the divine life of God. I want to conclude with a, a quote from Pope Benedict XVI, um, who back in Lent of 2013, not too long before he resigned from the, the pontificate, he reflected on a subject that was one of the abiding themes of his pontificate, which is the intimate and necessary relationship between charity and faith. He said, when we make room for the love of God, then we become like him, sharing in his own charity. If we open ourselves to his love, we allow him to live in us and to bring us to love with him, in him, and like him. Only then does our faith become truly active through love, and only then does he abide in us. What is faith? Well, Bindic says that faith is knowing the truth and adhering to it. Charity is walking in the truth. So faith causes us to embrace the commandments of Christ, as the Gospel of John and 1 John emphasize, while charity gives us the happiness of putting it into practice. And in faith, Benedict explained, in faith we are begotten as children of God. Charity causes us to persevere concretely in our divine sonship, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And faith enables us to recognize the gifts that the good and generous God has entrusted to us. Charity makes them fruitful. So in conclusion, actually, I'd like to read a uh, verse from Revelation 21, uh, book of Revelation being one of my favorite books of the Bible, not because there's so many people that are wiped out, but because the book of Revelation really at the very end is an incredible depiction of what theosis is all about. In Revelation 21, John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling of God is with men. And this is a reiteration of John 1, right? He will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself will be with them. He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have come away. And then from the very end of the book of Revelation, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Thank you.